Thank you for joining today's United Nations Arts Initiative podcast. My name is H2 Stephen Michael Apatow, founder of the Humanitarian Resource Institute and United Nations Arts Initiative. Today I'm joined by Lieutenant Colonel Scott Mann, co-founder of the nonprofit organization The Hero's Journey. Scott is also the best-selling author of the book Game Changers, Going Local to Defeat Violent Extremists. He has also produced the play Last Out, Elegy of a Green Beret. With performances in 13 cities so far, from Albuquerque to New York, Last Out has honored over 500 military heroes and Gold Star families. Scott has spent the last 23-year Army Special Forces career involved in foreign internal defense and combat deployments in Colombia, Ecuador, Peru, Panama, Iraq, and Afghanistan. Thank you, Scott, for being with us. Oh, hey, Stephen, my pleasure. Scott, you helped develop a program known as Village Stability Operations as an approach yeah. to defeating violent extremists while you were in Afghanistan. Can you give us an overview of what that is? Yeah, um, Village Stability Operations really is, is going local to help uh, community members stand up against um, insurgency, lawlessness, and really instability. It's a, it's a bottom-up approach to helping local people take back their community. And um, it involved, you know, special forces, but a whole host of other um, military, state department, nonprofit, USAID folks. And we just focus on all the elements of formal and informal civil society and helping them stand up and then and then achieve a level of autonomy, but also a relationship with the state that is appropriate for where they are. And uh, it's a methodology that we that we developed. Uh, I, you know, I want to say, Stephen, it's a methodology that I believe we refined. Uh, this methodology has been around since T.E. Lawrence and before. So, uh, but that's pretty much what it is in a nutshell. Uh-huh. And and the number of players you had alluded to um, was pretty extensive uh, regarding the visionaries that helped you develop this whole program. Absolutely. I mean, I, I one of my favorite things to do is to talk because you know, there's really you know like in any story there's 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 really two arcs, right? There's the there's there's the uh, there's the arc that you see, and then there's kind of the inner monologue arc or the inner arc of evolution. And that certainly was the case in this story. Behind the scenes were some very, very amazing uh, people who, who really were at the forefront of this initiative that, frankly, I don't think they, their voice is heard enough in, the, in this day and age. People like Dr. Seth Jones, people like Dave Phillips, Dr. Arturo Munoz, Mark Weiner. These were all people who were not just academics. They, they put their money where their mouth was. They went to these places and really invested their time and effort uh, to try to put programs in place that work, and, and they really were responsible for a VSO methodology that went from a science project of six villages to, you know, an internationally recognized campaign that uh, stabilized over 113 villages in like 18 months. Mm. Can you uh, give us, elaborate on the importance of the bottom-up stabilization approach? Yeah, so that really, it, it, you know, there's there's a couple of people that, that 
really deserve a lot of um, uh, credit. And I, and I don't mean credit in like, oh, you're great, but just they did so much yeoman's work. Uh, one of them is Dr. Seth Jones. And Seth really started synthesizing the bottom-up approach around 2008, 2009. He was working at Rand Institute. He's a, he's a real forward thinker. And Seth, you know, had been working on Afghanistan for a while and had, you know, in his tribe, some very, very skookum stability experts like Dr. Arturo Munoz, who had spent years in Afghanistan, Dave Phillips, uh, uh, who had an interagency player who had relationships going back to the 70s. Um, he was connected uh, to Salmay Khalilzad. I mean, Seth really took a ton of information and he synthesized it into this notion that look we've been trying to go top down in Afghanistan since we arrived in country in fact it's called the graveyard of empires because most or all of occupying forces that go there they try to come from the top down and what that means is they try to project power from the state they try to project power from a central location and and the problem with that is so as you roll out from Kabul and Kandahar with heavy firepower and, and, you know, try to connect with the people, that has never worked in that country ever. And what Seth put forward was, like, if you really want to stabilize this country or have a chance of stabilizing it, you have to look at what has, is historically appropriate. And he pointed out the Musahiban dynasty, which was Afghan rulers who led, led between the 1920s and 1970s before the Soviet occupation. And what they did... Stephen was they combined a, 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 a you know a precarious balance of top-down state control to a certain degree, mostly just security. But then where the pavement ended, you know, which is most of Afghanistan is rural, that was bottom up. That was local tribes, clans, and communities handling their own stability, not just security, but also economic development and governance and dispute resolution. There was a real precedent there for this, and we had just completely overlooked it. So what we put forward was a bottom-up approach where we re-empowered informal civil society, not just tribes, but communities, to uh, stand up on their own and establish a platform, as General Scott Miller called it, a village stability platform of economic development, uh, dispute resolution or governance and security. And then eventually, once that platform was established, then walk it back and have this connection between bottom up and top down. Mm -hmm. Now, what was the response of the Taliban and Al Qaeda to going local? Uh, almost immediately, you could, we knew we were onto something. You know, uh, I, I, I hate to say that violence is that kind of a metric, but it, it really is. I mean, we we knew in short order as these communities. I mean, even as we started to move into the communities, which was radically different, by the way. Up until 2009, our special forces units were living in, for the most part, built-up fire bases. Now, they were in proximity to a lot of these critical communities. However, it's important to, to note that they, you know, it was a roll-in, roll-out kind of thing. So they would, they would move into these communities. They might need med caps or you know, medical exercises where they provided you know, some type of support. But the reality was they were looking for bad guys. And it was, it was kind of an in-and-out kind of thing from these built-up fire bases. So as soon as we changed the dynamic with the bottom-up approach, we said, you know what, we're going to live in the community. We're going to live alongside the locals. We're going to eat what they eat, sleep where they sleep, have, you know, have, be part of that community, and be, be invited into that community by, by the locals. That changed, I mean, the 
violence upticks were astronomical. I mean, you know, the Taliban came at us with all four feet. So we knew that we were scratching against something that really scared them. And that continued up until you would see usually some kind of what's called an Armakai Pashtun Society, a local defense force. Once that was established and it started to reclaim its presence uh, for security in these local communities, you would see the violence start to go down as people started to take responsibility, not only for their own security, but for their own food production, um, for their own dispute resolution, things like that. As a level of resilience started to ebb back in, that violence levels would go down. So it was a huge spike in the beginning. Um, and then it, ultimately, we started seeing elders targeted. That was the next wave of violence, and it was particularly ugly. Mm. And then cut and run? Yeah, so it's a real unfortunate thing um, with how this thing went down. I talk about this in Game Changers. Yep. And, you know, Stephen, we have an unfortunate history in um, the United States for how we work with indigenous people. And, you know, the bottom line is we started this program. It was extremely effective. General Petraeus got behind it. President Karzai got behind it. It, it was it was much like the original CIDG program working with the Montagnards in Vietnam. It, 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 it offered mm-hmm. tremendous promise. But what we said all along was, Seth, Dave Phillips, myself, is, look, this is a long-term approach. This is not a short-term exit strategy to cover down on the rural places so that we can withdraw. This is a multi-year, multi-decade capacity-building component that is often called remote area fit, remote area foreign internal defense and special forces doctrine. And it's going to take time. It's going to take multiple administrations. We're going to have to help build capacity uh, in these communities the same way we're building capacity with the Afghan National Army. It's going to take patience. It's going to take administrations working together like we've done in Colombia. We pointed to Colombia and we said there's an example of what's possible over decades, you know, going from the largest insurgency in the world with the FARC to, you know, articles of reconciliation. But it takes that. And I'll tell you, Stephen, no one at the highest level I don't think hurt us. Um, maybe we didn't do a good enough job of putting that out there as a cautionary tale. But what started to happen was we started to overlove the Afghan local police program, which was the Afghan version of this under Karzai. Mm-hmm. And it started to become far too programmatic. It started to become top down. We started putting uniforms and salaries in these local defense forces. We started pushing out the elders and their say and, and giving more power to the state. And the Taliban just started salivating at that. And then it quickly became apparent that we were trying to stand up as many Afghan local police sites as we could to cover the exits for pulling out of these villages. And then ultimately, within another year, that's what we had done. We basically broke the promise that we had made, that we, myself and others, had made to these locals of, hey, we're not going to leave you. We're here for the long haul. We did do that, and many of them were slaughtered, um, and we lost a tremendous amount of strategic and international report by how we've done that. But that was not the first time we did this with the Montagnards in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. We've done this with the Iraqis when we pulled out of Iraq. We've done this with the Kurds. It is becoming a very, very concerning approach that we use because our policymakers and our senior officers are not deep enough on this problem set to understand the cost of abandoning indigenous people when we sign on with them. Mm-hmm. Okay, could you give our audience some feedback regarding our current peace talks with the Taliban and planned withdrawal? 
Yeah, I mean, you know, I'll be, I'll be, you know, truth in lending on that one. I have been more removed from that process intentionally. Okay. Um, because, you know, I just, I don't dabble in that arena uh, or play in that arena like I used to. I've, I've been focusing more on extracting the leadership lesson, telling the story at home. Right. Um, I mean, I do pay attention to what's going on over there, but I'm not as deep on it as I, as I probably should be. Look, I, I think, should look at Dr. Seth Jones' wisdom on this. He wrote a book on how insurgencies end, and brokered brokered negotiations are typically how they end. You know, if you uh-huh. look at the FARC, um, you look at the Sendero Luminoso. I mean, most of your large-scale insurgencies, and this certainly is one with the Taliban. It's a rural insurgency that's mm-hmm. been going on for twenty years. Um, there's usually a brokered arrangement. You know, and um, so I, I, I'm not to a brokered arrangement. What I have a problem with, Stephen, is that I don't think the people who are really at the top, highest level of our country fully understand the dynamics of what's going on in a place like Afghanistan or Syria. I think there is this myopic view that we can just, you know, go in and kick doors and somehow attrit the bad guys enough that they won't be a threat and that that is a that is what special operations is all about, and that's how we handle this in the future. And I, I think that's a fool's errand. You know, I think it's a necessary component. But so if we if we negotiate this peace settlement, and you know we completely pull out of the country, and all we have is like a door kicking force, you know, or even maybe not even that, then I think there is a very very strong chance that there will be a re-emergence of a globally relevant force in Afghanistan that has safe haven there. And we're going to have to deal with it again. All this time it'll be my kid that has to go deal with it. So, mm-hmm. you know, typically when we negotiate a settlement like this, it's you, we don't have the upper hand at all. We haven't. And I think that's shame on us for all of the blood and treasure we've spilled in that country. Um, and I'll tell you one other thing about this, if I may. Um, mm-hmm. I don't necessarily share everyone's pessimism about, you know, wasted time in Afghanistan. I've seen that a lot on social media here lately. And mm-hmm. It's about time, bring them home. I, you know, I, I think that's a real slap in the face to so many of our men and women, not just in, in uniform, but mm-hmm. in government service who have given a lot to that country. And you know what? Afghanistan, in terms of capacity build, is a hell of a lot better than it was than when we started. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of indicators and metrics that, you know, that we, we did some deep good over there. And, and especially in the period of 2009 to 2012, I think there was a lot of, uh, of internal capacity building at a community level. I'm not saying by any stretch that we, that it was a W because it wasn't, but I, I'm also reluctant to say that it was a waste of time because I just don't believe that. I patently think that's false. I think that the relationships and the, uh, the work that was done over there on a range of levels uh, to include, you know, standing an army up for nothing, from nothing. I'd like someone to try that sometime. <laughs> you know, it's one thing to build capacity in a weak army. It's another thing to stand one up for nothing, uh, include, and, and, the, and the police force. So, you know, I think we've got, I think we could still do capacity building over there. In the back of my book, Stephen, in the original book, I lay out an outline of how we could do long-term foreign internal defense in Afghanistan, and I wish a couple of folks would take a look at it. 
2017, we had over 70,000 opioid drug overdose deaths in the United States. It's estimated that 90% of the world's opium supply comes from Afghanistan, a challenge that we've not been able to address since the beginning operations in the country following 9-11. How do you feel planned negotiations in the context with what you've seen will impact this crisis that continues to overwhelm the grassroots first responder level across America? Yeah, it, you know, it's hauntingly similar to Colombia in the 90s to me. Mm-hmm. You know, I worked at Seven Special Forces Group, and we, you know, we were shoulder deep in the both the, the you know the narco insurgency that was Colombia at that time, especially post Escobar. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, it just it, to me, it's hauntingly similar. And and I and I see us kind of going down the same road, and not in a good way, uh, by by looking at eradication and, and you know, uh, source country operations that will stem the flow of that. I, I, I personally believe, having gone through a full cycle of a decade of counter-drug operations, that if you want to deal effectively with counter-drug, whether this goes all the way back to prohibition in our country, you have to address the demand. You know, you just have to address the demand. I don't think that we're doing enough on this end to... Uh, deal with the, 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 the crisis that we have in this country on drug use, uh, illicit drug use, particularly around the opioids. And it's an all-hands-on-deck kind of thing, because as long as there's that kind of demand signal for it, you know, there's going to be a source country. Now, I still think we should do disruption. We should put measures in place that, that can stem the flow. But having seen firsthand the magnitude of the opioid or, you know, the opium production over there, um, we're not even remotely investing what we need to do to, to, you know, to even like fractionally disrupt that flow. So it's almost like a token gesture in my mind. We need to really, I think, double down our efforts here at home. Um, And I I would like to see us maybe not over-invest over there in disruption because I I think it's the demand signal that needs to be stemmed. That leads me to our, our next focus, Beyond Lessons Learned in Afghanistan. How could going local, uh, the village stability operations model, have applications here in the United States? Yeah, I think I, you know, here's the thing: if you if you look at if you look at the methodology of village stability operations, it, it really is about working by, with, and through local people to help them stand up on their own and then make a connection with their government in a way that's locally appropriate Mm -hmm. and you know it is a bottom-up top-down approach and I think what it does is it addresses trust and capacity gaps between the state and a community we'll think about that for a second how many of those do we have in the country I mean they're everywhere you know and I believe so I think if you take that approach of hey you know and it does follow a certain kind of flow I mean first of all you have to find like I say in the book, you have to find communities that are willing to take a stand, or at least there are resilient leaders in those communities that are willing to take a stand. And many of them are unnamed leaders, like they are they're leaders without titles. But uh, it's helping those communities uh, stand up on their own. Get some, so community policing uh, could, you know, could absolutely play a role there, as well could, could other community programs, community influencers, and start building a level of collective resilience at the community level. 
And it, it, is, it is happening episodically around the country. You see this uh, in particular in my book uh, out in California, in Salinas, California. I did a case study uh, with the law enforcement folks that were basically using um, the village stability approach to stabilize one particular neighborhood that was horrific in crime from international gangs who were basically waging war right in this little community, and, and it worked. And then uh, most recently in, in, uh, in, in Pennsylvania, in a steel town in Pennsylvania, a law enforcement officer there who actually had exposure to BSO in Afghanistan was elected police chief, and he's implemented a full-up BSO uh, methodology where, I mean, you know, it's the whole, like, they even follow the entire uh, phasing of it, and it's been extremely successful. So they're looking not just at security aspect, but also economic development and the dispute resolution. Mm-hmm. So I think that as far as closing the gaps of capacity and trust between the communities and the state, I would highly recommend law enforcement look at this as a way, even if they just take elements of it. Uh, because the other thing, Stephen, is the BSO methodology is not just a, 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 a physical methodology of application. It's also a mindset. You know, mm-hmm. I say that the modern-day BSO practitioner has to be a combination of, you know, Jason Bourne, or John Wick, if you like, mm-hmm. T.E. Lawrence and the Verizon guy, mm-hmm. you know, uh, in that, you know, these are very dangerous, rough places, and there are bad actors there, and so we need operators and practitioners who have the surgical application of lethality when it's needed, for mm-hmm. sure, um, but but we also don't want them leading with that. We need them leading with what I call the Lorenzian skills, T.E. Lawrence in 1917, mm-hmm. as an advisor to the Badoo tribe, used high interpersonal skills to mobilize tribal leaders that wouldn't even sit in the same tent together without unsheathing their knives to come together, move through the desert, and liberate the the, the crown jewel of Aqaba and defeat the Ottoman Empire. Like, that kind of Lorenzian skill is what practitioners really need. Storytelling, active listening, negotiation skills, interpersonal rapport building. Like, those are lost art and science skills. And then finally, the Verizon guy you know, the little fellow that walks around, can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? Always building his network and illuminating what he's doing. I think that's the other piece is that as we build the bottom-up piece, we need the ability to reach the hand up to the other organizations that are above us from the state, but also across other institutions that understand dispute resolution and other grievances in these communities and build communities of practice around those problem sets. Like, there's so much need for this at home. Uh, that that's why I wrote the abridged citizens version because I feel like it could be a guide and is a guide in some cases to uh, communities that are struggling. Mm-hmm. This past November, you gave a TED talk entitled "Generosity: A Scar," and you shared your ugliest scar, the scar of your transition story. It was intriguing and shocking to learn that after the release of Game Changers in 2015 you reach your lowest point in your life. Yeah. Could you yeah. share Could you share about how at that lowest point you started on your path to healing and recovery? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I think that as I look on it now, um, that was an, just an all-is-lost moment for me when, when uh, I found myself, you know, standing in my closet uh, with a 45 in my hand and uh, not intending to come out. And 
my uh, my son coming home from school and hearing his voice was what pulled me out of that closet. And it wasn't the last time I went back in there. It, you know, um, there were there were other times right around that period where things got really really dark. Even though I had retired on my terms after 23 years in the military, I had had arguably a, a successful career. I had, I had written a book that that translated the lessons from the battlefield into lessons for the home front and the next war. I mean, by all outward appearances, I had a very successful transition. But mm-hmm. inside, I had disconnected from my purpose. I had disconnected. I had become isolated. And uh, when I did that, a lot of the things that I had pressed down for many, many years in special forces, from post-traumatic stress to survivor's guilt, a big one for me, mm-hmm. um, they started to come into there and formed a really nasty cocktail in my life. And my mood swings got very, very bad. Uh, I was very unpredictable. My kids walked around on eggshells. Uh, my wife and I, our marriage was strained almost beyond the breaking point. And, you know, all of those things were just pressing in on me. And I and, and, and at the epicenter of that, Stephen, I was like, you know, I have no purpose anymore. Who the hell am I if I'm not this Green Beret that did these things? You know, I, I had I saw no uh, path out of that. And it was in that darkest moment that I started to think about, well, this just, you know, I'm 42 years old. How can this, how can this be? Like, how can this be the end? Um, and, and it was a couple of mentors who helped me with telling my story, actually, because I was reaching for anything. And it was a couple of civilian mentors, one of them, Bo Eason, a great speaker and storyteller, former NFL football player, who really pushed me to, to work on my story just for help self-healing. And as I did that and, and developed my own personal narrative, my own backstory from my experience in, in special forces to coming home and what I'd learned, I started to really reconnect to myself in levels that I hadn't done in many years. And I started to feel things again that, that I, I hadn't felt since I was in special forces, a sense of purpose, a sense of um, belonging. And, and it really was cathartic. And so I started taking to the stage and storytelling and speaking first to veterans groups, but then corporate America started showing an interest in these stories around leadership and human connection. And before long, I was taking the experiences from the battlefield, what I call the scars in many cases, the, the things where I messed up or things happened to include even my, my bout with suicide. And I was sharing them in the service of other people. And that's really when things started to open up for me. That's really when I started to see a complete continuum between what I had done in the military and what I was doing now. And what I realized was that the military doesn't get to keep things like our ethos and our values and our purpose. That's ours. And I was reconnected to those again. They were always in me. My story was always in me. I was just merely, you know, changing mediums. And I was evolving in my archetype. And once that started to happen, then it became this beautiful continuum where I could move from one world to the next of that world where I wore boots to that world now where, you know, I don't. And, and, I, and I deal with a different kind of leader. So um, it was a necessary evolution, Stephen. I think for all of us, we have an all is lost moment have a moment where the snot's running off the tip of our nose. Um, we, we we're down on our bended knee and we just think, how in God's name can I get through this moment right now? That moment, I believe, is the most important moment in our life because it precedes, you know, the Rocky theme that's about to play if we're willing to take a breath and just keep going. 
Mm-hmm. Now, in your TEDx talk, and you touched on this focus, you shared about the importance of scars and scar stories. Yeah. How did that revelation lead to the production of Last L? Man, that's a great question. Um, so to unpack that a little bit, you know, I define, so Google defines a scar as a mark or a, you know, a bruise on the skin um, where a cut or abrasion has happened, right? And then and then the tissue comes together and, and heals over the top of that. And, and, you know, I define a scar for the purpose of what I do as, you know, as a mark on the soul. Know, and it's uh, it's earned through living one's life fully, and you know these scars that are inside of us, uh, even if they have a physical appearance as well, it's the in, it's the internal impact of the scars that can they can debilitate us, they can hold us down, they can make us feel ashamed, they can make us feel isolated, they can make us feel depressed, uh, they can have an immense control over us, they can own us, and what I've learned my journey, uh, and, and a lot of it has been through mistakes and hard knocks, is that we can also repurpose those scars in the service of others. In other words, mm-hmm. we can a scar is representative of one's struggle. And if we repurpose that struggle in the service of other people, particularly through our narrative, mm-hmm. um, then that, that is one of the greatest things we can do as a leader, because, because as humans... We are story animals. Sean Coyne, the brilliant editor, says that we are homo narrants. Remember to visit lastoutplay.com for additional information. Scott, I would like to thank you again for joining us today. Yeah, thank you, Stephen. And I appreciate all that you're doing to, um, you know, on both fronts. I mean, you have a foot on both sides of the ocean in your work. You have a foot... You're always a, a constant vanguard for, you know, what's happening in places like Afghanistan and other rough places and, and you know, really t- focusing on the right things and calling out the wrong things. Um, and, and the work that you're doing here at home to illuminate the challenges that um, our warriors and their families are facing. You know, I just encourage you to keep doing that. I know it can feel like you're charging windmills sometimes, but, um, you know, really at this point, you know, we are take them to work on and we have to carry these heavy rucksacks not for us anymore but for our children you know my son cody leaves for the infantry officer advanced course on may 31 and he will go fight the war i didn't finish it you know um so i'm very very honored that you're out there looking out for him and the other men and women who are continuing to to carry the heavy load and uh you know if we go, if we go silent then we their voices go silent and so we've got to keep pushing for uh, an approach that works, and I think we'll find it. I don't, I, if I didn't believe that, I, I would say so, but I, I think we can.